So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 as we prepare for the Word of God. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I want to thank everybody who, who so amazingly served last week. What a great day we had last Sunday. Thank you for all who, who served, who, who, uh, whether it was in the food end or the setup or the teardown, all those that shared testimonies in the service. Uh, what a great day we had. And I love the comment. I think it was made to Mark Vinson as somebody uh, walked literally from the parking lot all the way to the kitchen. And they said, if you want to see the body of Christ in, in action, each doing their part, just, just walk from the parking lot all the way to the kitchen. Uh, and uh, so thank you all for, for just a great day that we had in the Lord last Sunday. All right. Let's stand again. I want you to repeat after me. God is who he says he is. I am who he says I am. I can do what he says I can do. And I will believe his word. 1 John 4, verse 7, out of the ESV. Beloved. You're beloved today. If you're in Christ, you're beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Aren't you glad that the love of God isn't just something he says, but he manifested it to us? God is not a big talk, no do God. He's a big talk, big do God. He demonstrated, he made manifested his love among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we Love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. If you're in Christ, you have his spirit today. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever, is that you today? Are you part of this whoever? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. God, your truths are amazing. Your word is awesome. Would you now anoint it to, uh, to our hearts and our ears and our eyes so that we live as your people, that we would accurately represent you. God, I pray today in the name of Jesus that you would bring salvation to anybody who is not truly saved, healing to the hurting, strength to the weary, deliverance to the demonized, and that your people will be equipped for works of service for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, children that wish to go to Children's Church, you just missed out that exit right there. Look at this. We got a whole row. Emily, this is kind of cool. 
Uh, have, have, all your little, have all your friends uh, stand up. These are all boys from, uh, or children from our neighborhood that have come today. So we are so glad you guys are here. Yeah. So y'all are dismissed for Children's Church now and others that wish to go. All right, you're going to want your notes today because we are going to build a house. It's called the House of Love. And so you have this diagram. You're going to be able to fill it in as we move along. But boy, with all this happening in the world today, don't we desperately need love? I don't know who wrote that song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Uh, who wrote it? Man, you guys are sharp. But uh, we could have played that today as the intro to this message, couldn't we? Because what, what a day we live in. You know, from the shooting in Buffalo by a white supremacist to this crazy guy who went into the school and on and on. And, and, and we're getting weary of that, aren't we? We're getting weary that it seems like every week there's something else, whether Ukraine or whatever, or the person down the street, or the person that lives next door to you, or maybe in your own life. But our world desperately needs love. And how fitting that in our study of 1 John, we land on this passage that's all about love. Now, one of the things that I do, and let me, let me give us our definition of love. Again, it fits today perfect. I have never seen this definition fail me. Love is doing the highest good for the other regardless of the cost to self. It's doing the highest good for the other regardless of the cost to self. And we see that most demonstrated at the cross where Jesus gave his life for us. But for years, I have used what I call my house diagram to talk about the balanced Christian life. And one of the reasons this diagram is personal to me is because for many years in my Christian life, my house was upside down. I made the foundation what I did, and I lived a performance life where I thought that God loved me more or accepted me more based upon my performance. And so for about the first two years of my Christianity, I was on the performance treadmill. I had to earn others' approval. I had to try to do, do, do more things to make others think that I was special or to earn God's love and favor, but then God set me free by learning who I am in Christ, getting my identity from what he says about me, not from what I think about myself or others think about me or, or I think others think about me. And those vain imaginations, you know what I'm talking about. And this diagram helped me personally, but I also use it as a grid through which I read Scripture. And the diagram is basically this. The foundation of the house is who God is. The door into the house is the person and the work of Jesus. Then once you come through that door, the most important thing is to learn and grasp and understand and receive who you are, your identity in Christ. Then the attic is, is the Holy Spirit's power in you. That's the attic. That's what fuels the top of the house, which is your obedience, my obedience, what we do. But I had turned my house upside down for many years and made the foundation what I did. And so our Christian life, God desires that your relationship with him flow from the foundation up, that you're grounded in an understanding, a proper understanding of who God is. If you don't have a proper understanding of who God is, your whole foundation, your whole house will be shaky. There'll be cracks in the windows and the doors. You'll have cracks in your foundation and everything else will suffer. Then the only way into the house is through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So the door in is Jesus. Once you get saved, learn who you are in Christ, what God says about you. Get your identity from what God says about you. Then part of that identity is knowing who lives inside of you. 
the power that's within you, and that fuels your obedience. So, I will often use this diagram as I read Scripture. And I'll ask myself, see, I used to read Scripture, and I'd always ask myself, what should I do because of this verse? That just fueled my performance treadmill. It was always about what I needed to do, 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 works-oriented. Now, when I read Scripture, I say, what does this teach me about who God is? What does this teach me about what Jesus did for me? What does this teach me about my identity? What does this teach me about who lives inside of me? What is it now? What does this teach me about what I'm to do because of all the other stuff? Now, not every passage answers all those questions. But when I started preparing for today's message and I looked at these 10 verses, I went, every part of the house is in this passage. Now, it's not, it's not often that you come to a passage where you can fill in the entire house, but today it does, and that's where we're going to go. And so let's begin at the foundation. And the foundation is who God is. And what do we learn in this passage? God is love. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's about as plain as it can come, right? Circle that. Underline it. God can be defined by love. Verse 16. Says it again. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe The love that God has for us. God is love. Beloved, it is the core of who He is. All that He is and all that He does is because of love. He does the highest good for us regardless of the cost of self. He constantly sustains us and gives to us and shows us His grace and is eager to forgive and give wisdom. He is love. Can you imagine today, what would we do if God were not love? If He were merely holy, we would be consumed. He is love. You say, how can a God of love allow what happened this week in Texas? How can a God of love allow what happened two weeks ago in Buffalo? That's the most asked question by skeptics most asked question many times by believers where's God when these tragedies happen how can a God of love just sit idly by and let this happen he could have stopped it right well listen part of the definition part of the core of love is giving another the free will to either love back or not if I force another to love me back If I force another to do what I want, that's called abuse. That's called control. But because God is a God of love, He gives to His creation, His creatures, us, the freedom, the choice to either love Him, follow Him, or not. And with that freedom of choice, we know that comes much pain, much suffering, much evil. And I'll tell you this, It breaks no one's heart more than God's. I'm trying to do more and more this practice that Lucius talks about in his book. It's called two-way prayer. And you don't take your impressions as equal to Scripture, but it's, it's making prayer a dialogue instead of a monologue. And so part of the practice is you ask a question to God in prayer, and you write down what you believe He says to you. So this week, I said, God, how do you feel about what's happening? And I mean, I just, I couldn't stop writing. My heart breaks 
I bleed over this. I hurt over this. And just that sense that one of the most painful choices God made was to give us free will. Because he knew that with our free will would come decisions that grieve his heart and hurt other people. And that's why he came to earth in the man Jesus. To suffer, bleed, and die. The greatest injustice of all history is the injustice of sending an innocent man to the cross to die for a sin he didn't commit. Did you hear that? The greatest injustice in all of human history is a man dying who was sinless for a sin he never committed. And yet it was that very act that, that demonstrated the love of God the most so that the pain that is caused by sin and free will can be forgiven and can be healed. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is not only a God of love, but we also see in this passage, love comes from God. There is no love apart from God. It comes from Him. And this passage makes that very, very clear in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. So love comes from God, it says that. Love comes from his very heart. And anyone who would do these terrible things that we've talked about and that we've seen on the news this week is demonstration that they don't know God. And that makes it very clear in this passage that one of the signs that we've seen of a true believer, a sign of a true believer is love. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. I'm sorry, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The one who doesn't love does not abide in God. It's one of the signs of a true believer. And where love is most seen and most demonstrated and our definition most fulfilled, love at the highest level is at the cross of Jesus Christ. So now we move to the door of the house. And there we see that the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, is the way into the house. It's the only means by which we can be forgiven, reconciled to God. There is no other way. Acts 4, verse 12, there's no other name given among, among men whereby we must be saved. John 14 and 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We see it here in this passage, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You say, that's a big theological word. Yes, it is. It literally means, it's the word hilasmos in the Greek. And it means to intercept God's judgment, to avert the judgment of God. To literally intercept the judgment of God. Y'all remember in the Natty this year. In the Natty this year, y'all remember the famous interception, right? Georgia was ahead, we thought we had it, but then Alabama's coming back. 
And everybody's getting nervous. And then there was the great interception. And people went nuts because it secured the victory for Georgia. Now, I had knee replacement in December. And I'm in physical therapy for that about a week after the game. And my physical therapist is an over-the-top Georgia fan. And he was at the game. And he said, Pastor David, I promise you I was not intoxicated. But how I ended up two rows beyond my ticketed seats, I have no idea. After that interception, I have no idea how I ended up two rows below where I was sitting. I look to my right, and there's a 25-year-old man proposing to his girlfriend at that very moment. I look to my left, and there's an 85-year-old man weeping. And he goes, there's the picture, isn't it, of the great celebration. Well, I'm here to declare to you today that because of our sin, and because of our rebellion, and because of our turning our back on God, there was a past coming toward us with just due called the judgment of God. But Jesus Christ made propitiation. He intercepted that judgment and wrath on our behalf because he loves us so much. And he secured for us forgiveness, healing, reconciliation, acceptance. That what we deserved, we didn't get. Because the one who didn't deserve something got it on our behalf. The greatest injustice ever accomplished on the planet was an innocent man suffering for something he didn't do so that we could get mercy instead of what is justly due for us for our sin. And that's the gospel. And that's the good news. And that's our definition at its highest level. Doing that which is of the best for another regardless of the cost of self. What was the best for us? The best for us was to be forgiven and reconciled before God. The best for us was not just giving us an easy life. The best for us was not just making life more convenient. The best for us was not material possessions. The best for us was having our sin removed, forgiven, healed, and sanctified and Jesus Christ did that when he shed his precious blood on the cross and this beloved is why it's called good news it's good news we get what we don't deserve because he got what he didn't deserve he got what he didn't deserve so we could get what we don't deserve And whenever you doubt God's love and we all do we all do because of circumstances because of feelings, because of things that happen in our world, we will all doubt God's love at one time or another. And this is why God's Word reminds us over and over and over, I love you, I love you. Whenever we doubt it, we need to look to the cross, see the Savior Jesus bleeding and beaten with nails in His hands, nails in His feet, saying to you, I love you this much. I did this for you. God so loved the world He gave. Greater love hath no man than this that he lay down his life. John 15, 13. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and 8. And this leads right to the next part of the house. The main structure. Our identity. Who are we once we've come through that door and been saved? We are loved. I am loved. Say, I am loved. And this isn't, beloved, some... Just feel good thing. I'm not, this is not a feel good sermon. Just you know, trying to pump you up with some positive thinking. We're talking truth today. 
What is true? That's what will set you free. Not the power of positive thinking, but what does God's word say about you? And God says, I love you. You're going to doubt it when things go bad. You're going to doubt it when the world is falling apart. You're going to doubt it when your feelings aren't there. You're going to doubt it when your kids are rebellious. You're going to doubt it when there's very little food in the refrigerator. You're going to doubt it when the paycheck is not what you want it to be. But you go back to God's word and you by faith say, God, you said it and that settles it. God, you said it and I receive it. And sometimes you've got to speak to yourself the truth out loud. There is power in speaking God's word out loud. There is power in telling yourself the truth because the Bible says the truth will set you free. So look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. There it is. Verse 11, beloved, God so loved us. If God so loved us, and he does, we ought to also love others. Folks, we've seen this over and over in this book, in 1 John, but in, in, in the broader book. <laughs> it's all over the book. Literally, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a love story. This is his love letter to you. He says it over and over in so many different ways. He demonstrated his love when he delivered his people out of Egypt. He spoke his love through the prophets, Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We've seen it when I preached through the book of Hosea. Oh, what a picture of God's love. God commanding a prophet to marry a prostitute that he told ahead of time would not be faithful, but he was to be faithful to her to show Israel how much God loved unfaithful, a spiritually adulterous Israel. We've seen it in the life of Jesus. We see it in how he spent time with the most unlovely, the drunkards, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the adulterers, and Jesus would love them. We've seen it over and over in God's word. We've seen so many times that God, his love for you and me, it is unconditional. We can repeat this. I've preached this so many times, but it never, it, it, it should be repeated almost every week. He loves you unconditionally. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your works. It's an unconditional love. It's a personal love. He loves you. He knows you, the hairs on your head, when you rise, when you sit down, before you speak a word. His love is personal. His love is sacrificial. He went to the cross to demonstrate it. His love is experiential. He wants you to taste and see that he is good. He wants you to know the height and depth and width and length of his love. He wants you to experience his love, and his love is everlasting, it's eternal. It's unconditional, it's personal, it's experiential, it's sacrificial, and it's eternal. Listen, you are loved. Receive that today. You are loved, regardless of your past, regardless of that secret sin you're struggling with, regardless of that thing that you're ashamed of in your past or present. You are loved. And God wants you to receive that and know that today that is at the core of his identity and he wants it to be at the core of your identity. Just as he is a God of love and you cannot, he cannot not love because it's at the core of who he is. 
in the same way. He wants you and I to know so deeply that we are loved. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of feelings, regardless of what people say, we are loved. You are loved. And I'm going to pray over you right now. Father, in Jesus' name, I just pray the prayer in Ephesians 3 that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might know the height and depth and width and length of your great love that surpasses knowledge. I can't preach this enough to convince anybody. It surpasses knowledge. It's ultimately not a brain thing. It's a heart thing. So God, I ask you today, even right now, in some special way, to grant a revelation of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's the, that's, the, that's the core of the house, is our identity. And as we build this house of love today, the core of our identity in this passage, we, we've seen before our righteousness. We've seen before our, our, a number of things regarding our identity, our acceptance, our being in the body of Christ, each a part of the body. But today, in this passage, he's saying, you are loved. Now we move to the attic. Now, not every house's attic has the furnace. In our house, it does. One of the furnaces, the main power source to operate the heating and cooling is in the attic. Most houses, you see the power line go into the roof of the house, perhaps. And so today, imagine a house where the attic is, is where the power resides. The power that operates the, all the electronics, all the heating and cooling, the power is in the attic, and most people don't go to the attic. And that's the problem with Christianity today. Most people have in their attic something they don't tap into. And so as we move to the attic, what do we learn? We learn that God lives in me. If you're in Christ today, if you're saved, if you're born again, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've repented of your sins... Part of your identity is that he comes and resides in you. We've talked about this so much here. But it's loaded. It's just filled in this passage. And I'll read those verses in just a minute. But one of the most profound truths in Christianity is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all indwell us. God lives in you, and and you live in him. He indwells you. And and this is something else I would say that, that came to me this week. As you think about him loving you, I would go so far as to say he also likes you. You don't like, if you, if you don't like somebody, you don't want to live with them. Ever thought about that? You know, you can love somebody from a distance because you're supposed to love them, but there's a whole different deal to like somebody. You actually like to be with them. You like hanging out with them. There's a, there's a sense in which, hey, we get along pretty well. I enjoy their company. And I would say today, God likes you so much, he wants to live with you. And he's chosen to reside in you the moment you get saved. He doesn't, he doesn't live in people he doesn't want to live in. He wants to live in you. And if you're in Christ today, in Christ today he lives in you. Look at how many verses talk about this. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God... What? What's it say? Abides in us. Abides in us. 
Say, abides in me. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Say, he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. Say, he has given us of his spirit. That's not enough. In verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and God abides in him. Say, abides in him. Wow, it's all over the place. And he and God. Verse 16. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And here it is again. And God abides in him. How many times does he need to say this? The word abide and love are the two most repeated words in this section. We're building the house of love. And part of that house is the attic where God lives in us. So, beloved, it's not you and I trying harder to do this. It's letting the life of God live in us and through us. And then there's a profound verse, 17. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So that's dealing with one of the signs of being a true believer is seeing the love of God manifested in you and through you. So you have confidence on the day of judgment because you not only know from the word, but you know from your experience that you have a relationship with Jesus. And then he says, because as he is, that's Jesus, because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. By the way, Marshall Wilbur's new book is based totally on this little phrase right here. What does that mean? As he is, so also are we in this world. How in the world can this be? Listen closely. Because he lives in us. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so if he is literally living in us, which he is, then what he did, we can do also. Doesn't mean we're divine, but we have a divine nature. This is why he says we can pray and see healing. Cast out demons. Preach the gospel. Love all people, even the most difficult, even our enemies. The works that he did, we can do, and greater works than these, because he goes to the Father I know this sounds radical, but that's what the Word teaches. We are not divine, but we have the divine one living in us. And so if we allow him to be himself in us and through us, then miracles, signs, and wonders, and supernatural love can occur. We heard this last week in the testimony time, didn't we? It's time we believe what God's Word says and really live it. At least three people last week talked about being delivered from demonic spirits. That stuff still happens today. And we've heard pretty regularly around here about healings and radical transformations. As he is, so also are we in this world. Because we are his hands and feet. The word Christian literally means little Christ. And we can love people through his spirit in us. We can love even our enemies. And so the final part of the house that we're building today is the roof. I am to love. As we are loved, as we are empowered by the Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit, the first one is love. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit, you see. It's not a fruit of you trying hard. It's not a fruit of you learning some how to improve yourself technique. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the one dwelling in you who is love, being manifested out of you. Again, what's the definition of love? Doing the highest good for another regardless of the cost of self. You and I can't do that. It's impossible. It's impossible to love the way the Bible says. 
It's only possible through the power of the Spirit who lives in you. And you have that if you're saved today. You have the ability to supernaturally love. In 2015, Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, shot nine African-American parishioners during a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Y'all remember that? In November of 2021, at a hearing, family members could speak to Dylan. Anthony Thompson, whose wife Myra was fatally shot and killed at point-blank range, looked his wife's murderer in the eyes and said, quote, I forgive you. And my family forgives you. But we would like to take this opportunity to ask you to repent. To repent. To confess and give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ. So he can change you. End quote. Mr. Thompson invited Dylan Roof to make a decision that according to Thompson's way of thinking would enable Roof to share heaven with the folks he murdered. Including his wife. Are you kidding? Wouldn't I hope you rot in hell be more appropriate? Perhaps. Except that a supernatural power source was operating in Anthony Thompson's life because Jesus Christ had radically changed him. That is an incredible testimony to a watching world. Jesus said in John 13, greater love hath no man, or Jesus said in John 13, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Rachel Den Hollander was the first woman to publicly accuse USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser of sexual assault. After her, 265 women came forward. In 2018, 150 victims confronted him in court. Rachel was the last one to speak. And she said this, and I quote, Mr. Nasser, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom. And you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis, I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. She continued. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. That is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. End quote. 
Only the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit living in somebody can produce that kind of action. Again, doing some two-way prayer, I asked the Lord this week, Lord, as I preach on love, anything special you want me to share? And this was my impression. Love the unlovely, and this is possible because of who lives in you. I saw love displayed. I see love displayed every week here at Living Hope. Can we mature more? Yes. But I'm encouraged and blessed by so many of you. And as the days get darker and more challenging, you will need to learn to practice love at a higher level. You will need to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. You can expect to be mistreated and even persecuted in the days ahead. Love must be our response. In each situation, ask the one who abides in you to show you how to love others. Isn't that practical? In each situation you face, simply ask the one who lives in you to show you how to love that other person. Before we take some questions, let me just end with some practical suggestions. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a few that I came up with. How do we do this? How do we do this? Number one, meet practical needs. One way to show the love of God is to meet a practical need that that person has. And we, we saw this earlier in chapter 3, verse 16. Look at that. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word only, but in deed and truth. And so you simply meet a practical need. Now, what's the greatest need that people have? What's the greatest need people have? The forgiveness of their sins. The greatest need people have is not a material possession, which many times meeting a material need can help lead to this next one, but I would submit to you one of the greatest ways to love another person is to share the gospel with them. <laughs> because the greatest needs people have is, is to have their sins forgiven by God. And I love the quote. You know, they talk about that friends don't let friends drive drunk. You remember that bumper sticker, some of you older? Friends don't let, here's another one I thought about. Friends don't let friends go to hell. Friends don't let friends go to hell. And again, our definition of love, doing the highest good for another regardless of the cost of self. What's the highest good for that person to be reconciled to God? There's going to be a cost for, to self. I might get rejected. They might think I'm weird. I might get laughed at. But I'm going to do that which is the highest good for them. Number three, accept people where they are. Okay, now hold on. I know, I know for some of you there's pushback immediately. But you accept people where they are. It doesn't mean you accept their sin or their lifestyle. If they're living in a way that's contrary to the Word of God and they're not saved, you don't expect them. We shouldn't expect non-believers to live based upon biblical standards. Why would they? And so one of the ways to earn the right to be heard is to accept people where they're at. You don't ask them to change and then you accept them. You can be disgusted with their behavior. It could be a person that has been unfaithful to their spouse countless times and they don't think anything's wrong with it. And they're now living with another person that they were unfaithful to. But you love them where they're at. That's what Jesus did. He loved people where they were at. And then through that relational acceptance, he earned the right to be heard, which is number four. You speak the truth with grace. So we do speak the truth. It doesn't mean that you never speak the truth, but the better approach is to accept the person unconditionally. 
And then in relationship with them, you speak the truth and you do it with love. The Bible says that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. So sometimes saying something to a friend is hard. Say, brother, I love you enough to say this to you. So you speak the truth with grace. Jesus modeled these two so perfectly. And he accepted and loved the woman caught in adultery, but he spoke to her, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, grace. Go and sin no more, truth. Number five, you pray for people. Powerful way to love others. Talk about the highest good for another, regardless of the cost of self. It's a cost to pray. It's, it's laborsome. You don't see the results many times right away. And it's, it's a labor of love to pray for another person. Number six, work out conflict. Because guess what? In the body, we have conflict. I've said this many times, it needs to be repeated. In the body of Christ, we're a family. Families have conflict. Matter of fact, the more, the more closely you interact with a person, the greater the degree of conflict. If you just live in your house and come on Sundays and never interact with anybody, you're, you're not going to have conflict with them. You kind of keep a safe distance. The more you connect with others, the closer you interact is the greater potential for conflict. Anybody in a marriage knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you've not had conflict in your marriage, then you're really not connecting much. And I've said this before as well. One of the greatest ways that God sanctifies us and matures us is through conflict. Anybody married more than 10 years, you know what I'm talking about. As you work through conflict with your spouse, and it's hard, you got to be humble and you got to repent and ask forgiveness over and over. You got to say, God, what's my part? Because you want to just lash out at their part of the conflict. You want to point the finger. They, 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 they. And then the Holy Spirit says, Look, let me deal with them. And let me deal with you. Release them to me. And how about you coming before me and saying, God, search me, oh God, and know my heart, see if there be any hurtful way in me. Ooh, and then he starts showing you. Okay, I was a little harsh there. I wasn't very kind to you. I wasn't very patient with you. You start going through the first Corinthians 13, qualities of love, and all of a sudden you're like, mm, mm, nail me, nail me, nail me. So you repent, you humble yourself. And so as you work through those in a marriage, man, you grow closer. Then the next time there's a conflict, you have like, we can do this because we work through the last one. Well, it's the same in the body of Christ. You don't cut and run when there's conflict. You work it out. Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Doesn't mean you can be at peace with all men, but you do your part. And then number seven, be in a small group. <laughs> because in a small group is a great way to learn how to experience the one another's of the Bible. And that's why I'm so excited about our vision for home groups in the fall. where We're going to be starting groups in the fall where we hope and pray and make available for you to connect with others here in the, near where you live. And they'll have the component of the word and prayer and outreach. But in those groups, man, and meals together, you're going to grow closer, but there'll be challenges. Just warning you right now, there'll be challenges, there'll be conflict. But as you work it through, you're going to be stronger, we're going to be more mature as a body, and the Lord's going to be glorified. All right, let's take some questions. Two mics here, who can help me? Can you man one of those, brother? Make, here, let me make sure they're turned on right. Um, Charlie, can you man the other? Oh, you got it? Thank you, Kevin. Hold it close. 
Very good. Kathy's going to start right here. Or you can text. All right. Yes, Kathy. Will you tell us, please, what Dylan Roof's response was? I don't know. I wish I did. What about that man when that woman said that to don't him? Don't know that either. Sorry. I told you that I often say I don't know and ask questions. If somebody can track that down, relay it to me. I'll, I'll share it later. Actually, if it, does anybody know the does anybody know the response on those two examples? I may be mistaken, but I don't think they're allowed to respond in the courtroom. Oh, he's not allowed to respond. That's true. No, I think you're right. This is the time for the family to speak to that person. Um, but was there a response later? That'd be another thing. If anybody tracks that down, let me know. But I think you're you're right, Catherine. In the courtroom, you can't respond. Over here. Now we're here, just raise your hand. We'll bring a mic to you. Those watching online, you're welcome to text something in. I want to ask the question that um, many atheists or skeptics will ask and do ask. How can a loving God send people to hell? Because they chose to reject his offer. So they chose to reject the offer he made. And because he's not only a God of love, but a God of holiness... I'm going to share one Sunday my diagram of God's nature. If you want that, email me. But I've diagrammed the nature of God and all the attributes that I know of in Scripture and how they fit into this diagram. And sovereignty is the umbrella and all the omnis, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Then holiness and love. And they all point to the cross. And under holiness are other attributes like wrath, judgment, righteousness. Under love, grace, mercy, peace, you know, all that. But it perfectly meets at the cross. So because he's, this is where taking an in, incomplete understanding of God leads to an inaccurate conclusion. An incomplete understanding of the nature of God will lead to an inaccurate, un, inaccurate conclusion about God and other things. And so if you only are looking at the grid of his love, then you will conclude that hell is inconsistent with love. But when you understand that he's also a God of holiness, and holiness means he must punish sin. If he didn't, he would be an unholy, unjust God. Who would want a judge in a courtroom to not properly punish the man who did the shooting this week? Aren't we glad that he is going to face judgment? Not that we delight in anybody's punishment. But he is now dead. He has already faced his maker. And I tremble to think about that. Praise God, Hitler has been properly judged by a holy God. And we, 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 agree, we can see those things, but then it's harder when we see, you know, ourselves <laughs> or our neighbor or our relative. But holiness demands 